Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Jason Hazley. Hang on, I'm a cup of tea. Uh, I'm Joel Morris. <laughs> <laughs> and as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works. Or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is Izzy Mant. Hello. Hello, Hello Izzy. Hello, Jason and Joel. Now we have to give you your triple threat moniker now because you are now. You, I, I knew. I knew you met you as a producer, yeah. and you are now producer writer stand up. Yeah. Does that work? Or is that is that the right order? Or should we stand up yeah. writer producer? Oh, I mean. I think what I'm aiming for at the moment is writer, producer, comedian in that order. Right. Yeah. So you, but you, I'm probably still currently producer, writer, comedian in that order. So people would have seen a lot of the stuff you've produced and you've been sort of backstage on some Peep Show and Game Face and Harry and Paul and the Windsors and loads of other stuff like that. Yeah. And last year you went and did a, an Edinburgh show, your first like debut stand-up show, and it went down yep. really well. So that's a, an unusual move for someone who's been behind the scenes. Well, I think producer to writer is a... Fairly unusual, not as unusual, but it's a fairly unusual mm. move as opposed to the other way round. Certainly as a writer, that feels like a demotion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware of the pecking order in most rooms I'm in and I'm definitely under the producer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you spent some time on some of my producing jobs, you wouldn't say that. Okay. Uh, so... <laughs> the grass is always greener. <laughs> um, but I think that doing that sort of change of role, I just felt the need, not just in terms of my image for everyone else, but for myself to kind of break that mould in a slightly dramatic way. <laughs> and doing stand-up seemed to be quite a good way to do that. Because as a producer, you're so diplomatic and tactful and 
sensible and grown up. Not all the time, but that's what you're aiming for. And <laughs> I, I wanted to sort of say, I've got some stuff to say, and sometimes I swear, and well, sometimes subject, I'm wrong. The subject of your stand-up show was about saying was about being diplomatic and polite, and sort of saying that you wanted to just come out and go, fuck it. Yeah. It was about having been too polite and learning not to be. So you've moved from being a diplomat to being... I've, got, I've gone to the other fucking extrit now. As a provocateur? I mean, what's the opposite of a diplomat? A disruptor? But I suppose your, your job as a producer is to be a grown-up or, or, to, or to take the place or be regarded as a grown-up, fake grown-up? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a recipe for imposter syndrome. Think, <laughs> because if you're a producer who's found your way into comedy that's probably because you're someone who likes comedy so you have that personality of being slightly an outsider and slightly cheeky and yeah so yeah, yeah so comedy yeah. producers are children pretending to be adults more than anyone else in comedy i think <laughs> this is news to me and it's going to affect a lot of meetings i was trying to think about any other producers i know who've done stand-up and the only one I could think of was Bill Dare yeah. who I know tried it out just because he wanted to see if he could do stand-up and he did it and went oh, okay done that <laughs> and just stopped but so yeah. he never I mean he didn't he didn't use it as a career move it's just as, as a sort of I don't know as a holiday from producing I think yeah. something like that. but I suppose Bill had been writing for years yeah Whereas I have been writing for quite a few years, but sort of secretly, not yeah. showing my writing to anyone, feeling like I was in this this sort of mould of producer and it was mm. hard to break out of it. So I think doing the stand-up was, in a way, it was more about the writing than the performance for me. Could you craft a thing? Could you find a voice, I suppose? Yeah. And really the only reason I was performing it was just because the material was quite personal to me, so it made sense for me to be saying it. Mm. But people always focus on the performance aspect because I think people always think, that seems so terrifying, how can you get up there and tell jokes? Yeah. But for me that was just a, a kind of <laughs> secondary to the writing, really. Well, that's, that's something that, that a lot of people have gone through as an experience. It's, it's basically, the, we didn't do it, but I'm told it's the Footlights experience, is that there's a, there's a, a thing that, people don't get threatened with a lot unless they go through that kind of process, which is to say, if you want your ideas out there, you have to do them. Yeah. And there's so many, I, actually David and Rob from Peep Show, both of them said they probably wouldn't have been performers, they would have rather been writers until someone put a gun to their head and said, if you want this material to reach an audience, you go out there and learn how to perform. And it's a thing that neither of you or I ever went through because we could make other people do it. But I've had that problem where people have asked us to write stand-up for them. And I can't because stand-up is something you have to go out and do. Mm. It's all to do with voice, and it's a different thing than writing for characters and things. But you've got, if you want your voice to be heard, you've got to then get over your fear of performing. Yeah. Did you find that hard? Um, I mean, I found it as hard as anyone. It's a weird thing to get up on a stage where the audience are expecting you to be funny and you haven't done it before. That is weird. Are they expecting you to be funny or are they expecting you to be shit? That's the thing that would worry me is I <laughs> wouldn't be able to read it. No, no, they're expecting you to try to be funny, which is, is the worst, worst of all. <laughs> I think it, the, the bit that would frighten me would be the actual performance bit rather than the... Because I'm sure I'd have faith in the material. I'm, and Presumably you had plenty of faith in your material as well. But actually getting up and performing, because there's a lot of what, what, what stand-ups do, a lot of it is about reading the room and about working the crowd and things and... Stuff like that, which I used, would be completely outside my areas of understanding. How, did you did you learn that? stuff Yeah, I had to quickly? learn all that, and you and you learn it by doing. I mean, I was doing stand up for three years before I did my Edinburgh show, right? But still, three years is not very long. I mean, the comedians all agree, you know, it takes ten years. There's this, yeah, <laughs> yep. and when I said I was doing a, a full hour at Edinburgh, 
my fellow comedians were all like, really? That's a bit soon. But I suppose what's different is I'm a lot older than most people when they first get into stand-up. And I'd spent over a decade working with some of this country's finest comedy writers and performers. So, Mm. you know, a little bit had hopefully rubbed off. But none of that had prepared me for the stuff you're talking about, the stagecraft, the reading the room, all of that stuff. And yeah, you just you just learn to do that by doing it. Really, mm. I'm I'm sounding very blasé about it. I mean, I was you know I was very terrified <laughs> first yeah. sort of, the first ten gigs or so. well, in fact, my I remember my tenth gig very well because Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse were in the audience. Fuck, <laughs> because oh, <I'd>, man. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about making it difficult for yourself because I'd made them. Mis- I'd, I'd already worked with Harry, but I'd produced two series of their sketch show, so I'd become sort of mates with them afterwards, and I'd made the mistake of telling Harry, because I was working with him at the time on The Windsors, he was playing mm. Prince Charles and I was actually being very secretive about the fact that I was doing stand-up. I had these, I was le- leading a double life for a while because I didn't want to tell other people on the open mic circuit where I started out, where everyone starts out, that I was a TV comedy producer for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, but I also didn't really want to tell all these really established and brilliant comedy writers and performers that I was working with that I was on the open mic circuit yeah. um, so I sort of kept it quiet but but I did let it slip to Harry because I just I, like I know him well enough and I trust him well enough and I just thought who better to get tips on live comedy performance from yeah. and of course he immediately said right when are you next on we're coming it, he included Paul I mean we're coming <laughs> so, wow and I thought and I said no there's no way I'm letting you come to a gig and then I thought I'd really regret it if I didn't have them. Co- I mean, what an adventure to have Harry and Paul come and see yeah. your tenth ever. It was. I remember it was my first ten minute because you know you start out doing five minutes, yeah. and I managed to wangle somehow as my tenth gig a ten minute set. I was so excited to do it, but you know, I had my my tight five, and I had to waffle another five minutes. <laughs> it was five. basically new material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had my only, uh, my still to date only proper heckle. Which was from Paul Whitehouse. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even remember what he said. It was it was such a sort of out of body experience. But uh, wow, yeah. Did you get any tips from them? Actually, I think Paul. I I had a good chat with both of them after. They were really great and said really nice things. I mean, they they are polite themselves, actually, despite <laughs> what you might think. So I think they would have said nice things, whatever. So I don't know if it was true, but they were they were very charitable. But, um, <laughs> but Paul, I think I was sort of being polite or touching on politeness at that point, but it wasn't my kind of theme. Yeah. And Paul kind of highlighted the fact that what's funny about me you know you're trying to find out what's my voice what's funny about me at that stage and very early on in doing stand-up and um I think I hope I'm not misquoting him here he can he can correct me but um I think he said something along the lines of you know you seem very you get up on stage and you seem very sort of sensible and authoritative and grown up and then it's funny that you and you seem polite and then it's yeah. funny when you're not it's understanding what an audience thinks of you the moment you get on stage and it's a very existential thing to say well what impression do I create most people don't ask that question themselves ever in their lives mm. and anyone who's ever done performance if you go on a, a panel game or a talking head show or you're a, or you're a stand-up you suddenly realize oh people see me and put you in a box straight away it's a bit like being a teacher, I suppose. Your, your class immediately go, oh, it's the fat one, it's the angry one, he's the yeah. stroppy one, it's the northern one. You fall into a box and you're, 
your unruly class immediately uh, sort of stereotype you. Yeah. And I suppose what a stand-up's doing is, is using that to their advantage rather than as a weakness. Yeah, yeah. So someone, someone like Paul will be able to say, everyone thinks you're polite and grown-up. Yeah. So go for that. Yeah, yeah. Being... He sort of said, "Make more of that. You can, that's you can brilliant. play on that more." And and that's that was probably the start of the journey that led to me writing a whole hour-long show about politeness. Maybe that's mm. a question everyone should ask. I, I'm, I'm finding if if you ever work on your own, which is what stand-ups do, the hard thing is saying, "Well, is this is this any good?" Mm. That's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, "What do you think of me? Who am I, or who yeah. do I seem to be?" That's great. and how can I either exaggerate that and play on it, or break it in a way that's funny. That's brilliant. Mm. You, you, I think what you need is a second opinion. Isn't what is the material any good? Mm. Am I any good? Don't have that self doubt. Just go. When I stand here and say this, what do you think? Yeah, I thought that's probably and again probably something that a producer does for for writers as well. Yeah. Sort of, well, what do you think of this material? Because it's very hard to have any judgment of your own stuff. Yeah. And that that first person who you show it to, who then goes, ah, what you're trying to do is and mm. that's what Paul was doing for you. Yeah. I suppose something you might have done for other people. Yeah. Strange to, so. the rece- yeah. <laughs> strange to be the receiving end of it. Yeah, being that mirror, that outside eye, yeah. yeah. Reflect it back. But the big thing you're worried about then, obviously, is that you stand up there and you're, you're saying, I am someone. And that is, as you said, an absolute shortcut to imposter syndrome. Should I be here, especially in front of people who think of you as something else? Yeah. Do you suffer from imposter syndrome a lot? Oh, everyone does, don't they? Yes. Is there someone who doesn't? Is there? Is there? So, is it? Is it only Donald Trump? Trump? David is Cameron. It only, Trump. <laughs> actually, is it Eton? Is that what Eton beats out of you? Is, is, the, is the National Institute for Removing Imposter Syndrome? Yeah. That, I think this is what meritocracy is. I got here because I deserve to be here. And if you if you suffer from any doubts about meritocracies when you get imposter syndrome, but you you before you came in, you made a reference to Ionesco, and we both just completely shriveled up and went, "Yeah, we'll pretend we know what you're talking about." And then you said, "I don't know what I'm talking about." <laughs> Literally, there's a synapse in my brain that connects the word Ionesco to the word chairs. And if anyone mentions right. chairs, yeah. for, for my whole life, I think, since teenagehood, I've sort of said Ionesco and some intellectual people in the room have laughed and I haven't really known why. It's the same as Pinter and Pauses. Right, yeah. You, you know, there's, there's a link between them. Well, I was, I was laughing because I used to work in a bookshop and I can, I can tell you anything about any author as long as it was on the back of the Penguin Classic or The Spine. I've never been inside those books, but I can... Bluff my way in knowing what the subject matter is. Yeah, I've got. You see, one on Ionesco. I I don't know whether I have read Le Roi Sommeur or whether I've just. I mean, heard which of, of us really knows if we've read? I mean, Le Roi, you know, has anyone you, really read? If you think you've if read, you think it. you've read it, you probably haven't. I, really. think I, I think I I think I know what happens. I think it's about a king sitting on his throne while his kingdom dies. And but why do I know that? Have I read it or have I just heard of it? I've no idea. Yeah, it's very hard to tell. Joel, like, have you heard of this no, book Jason's no, talking about? I haven't even heard of but it. But I think, having been to university, I could probably talk about it for about half an hour now <laughs> and no one would know I hadn't read about it. Because it's all to do with your, your culture is learned and some of it's learned by reading the things and some of it's learned by listening to people who've read the things. Yeah, I used to get really cross at university when people came into a seminar or a tutorial and they'd obviously read the book and I hadn't which is the usual state, mm. and then they refuse to talk. And I used to get really cross. Why don't they talk? Because if they talk, I can make some guesses. <laughs> <laughs> if they're holding this knowledge to themselves, that's very selfish. Say it out loud and I can probably bullshit around this and get away with it. Give me your information. I used to be furious if people just read things and kept them to themselves. Whereas yeah. if you listen, if you're yeah. a good listener, you can probably bluff yourself in most culture, pop or high. Yeah. Well, I, I have it with pop culture as well because I spent... Quite a lot of my teenage years doing quite a lot of ballet. 
and uh, it, it took up time that I should have been spending watching well, anything trashy does. films or you know <laughs> listening to pop music and the stuff yeah, that yeah. the other kids were doing. And and then later in life, I became a comedy producer and I worked with all these comedy. And of course, comedy scripts are absolutely full of pop culture references. A lot of them nostalgic pop culture references. Yeah, it's very tribal. And so I learned all this stuff secondhand through through comedy scripts without necessarily having seen the original film or heard the original band triangulate what it was yeah. about by, yeah. by the evidence that was given to you. Yeah. But it's the currency. I mean, it really is. When you end up with, especially if you come through the generation that gave us Spaced, it's just, it's, it's the, even if you're watching those great big, like those big Marvel epics, they're full of references to David Hasselhoff and Pac-Man and things. And you think, how is this, what does this look like to kids? Yeah. What does it look like to people from another culture? Or ballerinas. I mean, <laughs> none of the people have got a chance. <laughs> I really feel for them. But you, you, you end up having to sort of just work it out and bluff your way along. Yeah. Do you get it wrong? And, well, uh, yeah, I'm sure I, I can't think of any examples because I've, I've been obviously really so well. used to Don't bluffing. really well. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I go back and do discover the original source. I think, you know, I've seen so many references to um, Star Wars. Yeah. Um, oh, I should watch the actual film. Yeah. It'll be only disappointing. It's not as good as the references. That's my, mm. that's my fucking uh, terrible blind spot there is that I did see the original Star Wars film when it came out in 70... Um, but didn't like it. So I've never watched any of the others. I don't think... I think No, I think mm. I was forced to watch one once. But whenever a Star Wars reference comes up in a writer's room, I just go very quiet because yeah. I don't know what's going on. Someone says, yeah. you know, the Death Star, and I go, I don't know what that is. I've heard of it, but I don't but know that, what yeah. it is. That, those, those cultural currency things. I remember saying we talk to... about Ionesco instead. <laughs> <laughs> I can bluff that. And also, I'm, I'm aware that no one else knows what that is. That's a club where we, yes. none of us know. Yeah. I mean, I got lucky. Now it's I... your turn to go quiet, everybody else. Because <laughs> your, your obsession was like French classical music, you were ballet. I was obsessed with comics, so I've lucked out in the fact that the cultural stuff I wasted my time on has become the culture that we all share. So I'm yeah. quite good at this. I'm going, this is an unfair advantage. All that wasted time. If, if, if it had been Ravel... Or if all the franchise films were about... Ravel, yeah. then, then I'd be piano. completely lost. Ravel as a superhero He's... feels like quite a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ravel, oh, thank God, uh, Maurice is here. <laughs> Super Mo. Yeah. That was me just showing off that I know Ravel's first name. That yeah. was my yeah, instinct, yeah, yeah. was yeah. to jump in. And... But you throw these, these things out there. It's like a tennis game, constantly. You're throwing things in hoping someone bats it back. And I suppose it is, they are tribal. They're sort of saying, do you get the joke I've given? But they're in everything. Yeah. And I suppose it's, it's you're, you're reliant very often on on either having been exposed to that stuff or studied it, which I think people don't admit they've done. And if I remember getting into music quite late, pop music quite late. Uh, I think the first single I ever bought was Ghostbusters. So I would have been well into my teens by the time I, I got interested in music at all. And within two years, I bought a guitar and started a band. So in those two years, I must have gone to the library and got everything out. Because I was at a library card, so I went and I bought the Virgin Encyclopedia of Rock. And went, OK, right, I need to listen to this and this and Led Zeppelin. And it was a learned thing. And I think it's certainly when you're, when you're frightened of being exposed as a fraud in culture, especially as a teenager, you swat up quite a lot. And people, I think people don't admit quite how much they may have done crash courses in music. Or uh, film. Or, yeah. yeah. That they may have just done it really fast and then passed as experts on it because otherwise the tribe will expel you. Yeah. Well, sometimes as well, if you're, I mean, if you're writing, you do have to do research. That's something that happens a lot in comedy, especially if you're working in sketch comedy and things, is you are required to... I used to... This is, shows my age. I used to watch a program called Joe 90, a Jerry Anderson series, and it was about a boy who was sent on missions and he had a pair of glasses that he put on, which contained all the knowledge about that mission. His brain would be programmed just for the duration of that 
of that day where he had to be an expert on oil rigs or whatever. And I used to watch that go, that's brilliant. And I've lived my whole life like that, is I can learn <laughs> about a subject quite quickly, go into a meeting, know everything about it, and the next morning have forgotten everything about it. Yeah. Which is quite a good comedy that's a useful brain. skill, yeah. And you're saying sort of you're, you're picking up the, 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 the pop cultural references for just long enough to be able to do the room. You know, one of the things about uh, popular culture references, of course, is that you can often get enough you've said this many times and you're quite right you can often I'm looking at you Joel sorry for the people who can't see where my eyes are pointing because they're, I they're... told you to get those little bells for your eyes <sighs> yeah I can tell <laughs> which way bells. they're going um, you Joel have uh, often pointed out you can pretty much learn like if you if I wanted a crash course in Star Wars show me a parody yeah I, I reckon the family guy things. the family guy Star Wars will give you everything you need to know about Star yeah. Wars I was told this by a teacher at college who understood that I didn't like reading the actual books you'll understand universal horror watch young frankenstein you want to understand westerns watch blazing saddles there is a really good way of doing it because they will line up the clichés yeah I, I know everything i know about movie tropes from french and saunders and the comic yep. strip. So yep. what are you bringing today? <laughs> I am bringing my favourite episode of the comic strip. It's the comic strip presents The Strike. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if we're going to revitalise the British film industry from an American perspective, then Miner's Strike is undoubtedly the sort of film that we should be doing this year. Oh, I agree. It's got terrific potential. What about Al Pacino's Arthur Scargo? Cappuccino box. So when did you see Comic Strip uh, Strike? Um, I think I saw it when it, it came out in 1988. Yeah. And I think I saw it at the time. I was very young. Um... I had, I think, as a youngster, I had a form of privilege in terms of getting into comedy in later life, which is not talked about as much as the other forms of privilege, which is licentious parents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was allowed to watch The Young Ones when it was... And I must have been seven. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, but I wasn't really aware... I grew up in Brighton. Everyone had licentious parents. I went to a comprehensive <laughs> school in Brighton. So there wasn't that thing. I, the only time I realised that The Young Ones was a bit edgy and shocking as something to show to children was when we were staying at my granny's and me and my sister said, oh, it's, you know, it's our programme that we watch tonight. It's our funny programme. My granny thought this would be... A, you know, mainstream family sitcom. And <laughs> after about two minutes, she said, we're not watching this and turned it off. And I realised it was naughty. So I'm, you, quite, you... I'm quite jealous of your childhood now. <laughs> well, there's a downside. I mean, we, di we didn't... I, I was here about other people at school having, you know, cassette tapes of Derek and Clive passed around in mm. a secret way and don't tell your parents. And we never had that experience of comedy being something that was forbidden and naughty. So, you know, I missed out on that, I suppose. I once took my car for an MOT and the cassette that was in this dated, isn't it? The cassette that was in the stereo in the car was Derek and Clive ad nauseam. And the mechanics from the garage came out to congratulate me on my taste <laughs> when they'd done the MOT in the car. <laughs> That's brilliant. But so this this comic had you seen the other comic strip? Episodes was this something you? I don't think. I think the first series had. I think I was probably too young then, and I wasn't yeah. aware. So it was the, it was the nineteen eighty eight series was mm. when it really kind of came to my attention. But particularly Strike 
We called it. I think it's called the strike, but we yeah. called it strike in my family. Yeah, the film within it is called it's strike. Called, exclamation called strike. Mark, exclamation yeah. mark like Oliver. Yeah. Exclamation yeah. mark. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think. I think my videotape of it is labelled strike. Exclamation mark. Yeah. I think in a way you see it that way as a kid. You go, this is all about that fake film. Yeah. And it's it's got that structurally. It's got a, a making of the film within it, which I think is one of the strokes of genius it's got that they lacked when they did it again, yeah. is it's got the story of how this bad film got made. Mm. It's about a, a, a very, very uh, sincere and real screenwriter who's written this amazing screenplay about the, the miners' strike of the 80s, and it gets picked up and he gets offered loads of money to make it into a Hollywood film. And the way the film works as an hour-long film is you get to see him be compromised and then clips of the film at the premiere and at the award ceremonies are shown and you get to see the consequences of him selling his soul to the pompadour devil. Now, uh, <clears throat> my partner and I are both of the opinion that uh, this property has a very good chance of doing very good box office business in the United States. However, however, we feel too that uh, for this to be a possibility, we'll have to make one or two tiny changes to the screenplay. Uh, well, we did feel that there, there would be some rewrites, you know. Um, which bits did you think might need more? Um, so it's a really neat structure, but in that you get an excuse to see a brilliant pastiche of a big Hollywood epic. Yeah. What's wrong? Come on, what is it? Wayne? Slim said he saw someone go down there. What? It was a little girl, Arthur. No. They found this. I couldn't stop her, Arthur. She was crying and acting like a mad thing. What's the gas weed out? Two minutes, maybe less. Please, don't do this, Arthur. Give me that budgie. You haven't got a chance in hell. That's my daughter down there. But by the time you get to see the film itself, they've set up so much about the way that it's that his story has been mucked around with mm. um, and the character of Paul, the writer, played by Alexi Sale brilliantly, that... There are so many layers to yeah. watching that. But you're watching it just as a as a viewer of the film, enjoying a parody. You're also enjoying, I mean, actually secretly enjoying the story of the film. You know, actually yeah. rooting mm. for Arthur Scargill, yeah. played by Al Pacino, <laughs> played by Peter Richardson. <laughs> Strip for the waist on a Harley Davidson. Yeah. That's Arthur Scargill. The Arthur Scargill, to be honest, I know more about than the real one. Slim. Yes, sir. I need your bike. Yeah. I'm honest, that's my Arthur Scargill. That's, that's your reference. Yeah, yeah probably the same for me. But but you're also watching it through the eyes of Paul, the writer, yeah. because you know so much about what he wanted it to be and what's been done to it and all the different characters involved in making this film. That as you watch it, you're with him thinking, oh, no. <laughs> you know? it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, the thing that needs to be said about this, which I'd completely forgotten, but re-watching it, Alexi Sale the most unlikely person to pick as the sympathetic heart of a film. Yes. Someone who in The Young Ones yes. used to push me away. I, I can't get to know that guy. He's got big eyes, big wounded. John Belushi in The Blues Brothers under the glasses, wounded, woman-melting eyes. Yeah. He's just got this brilliant look about him that says, I want to cuddle you. You're just so vulnerable. So, Mr Thomas, uh, you're going to rewrite the end of our film? Well, um, put it this way... Um, I've put a lo lot of work into this. Sure. Writing's hard. And, and the thing is, uh, I'm not very happy about the way things have been going. For instance, I, I haven't been paid for all the work I've done. And I think, all in all, it might be better if we just...
call the whole thing off because, well, it, it hasn't worked out the way I'd hoped. Bernie! It's a really lovely performance from him. He looks so wounded. And that lets you in to yeah. the whole thing. You go, I'm rooting for him. Yeah. And that allows you to have this big parody and things. Whenever you want to do a parody in something, it's hard to excuse it. And you want to give it a warm heart because otherwise you're just being a smart ass For an hour, you can't just do... It's a sketch yeah. otherwise. And to make it an hour long... And you get a lot of the film. It's not like they put 10 minutes of the film. They put a lot of 25 minutes, 30 minutes of film in this. But the excuse is you've gone in to this journey through this guy's eyes. And it's it's a, comparable to Graham Chapman in, in Life of Brian. It's a really good tortured soft performance yeah and brilliant. quite a low-key performance and you sort of get this so there's one scene where he sort of finally gets to be Alexi Sale um, <laughs> and, and it's it's in the real world as opposed to in the film within the film yeah but as with a lot of the scenes it's sort of sneakily a bit parodic itself it's the scene where he I'm jumping forward a bit but it's the scene where he wakes up in the night well, you think he's waking up, but he's actually it's, he's in the middle of a nightmare. Uh, and uh, the voice of Arthur Scargill, it's like the spirit of <laughs> Arthur Scargill, uh, is speaking to him. Paul. Paul. Yeah? I'm coming to get you. Who's this? Arthur. <gasps> I've just seen the film, Paul. It wasn't my idea. You're dead. No, it was them that made me change the history of the strike. They made me do the rewrites. You took the money, Paul. Oh, I'll give it to the miners. I'll change it all back. Look out the window, and uh, and he he delivers this sort of huge lunatic performance that's very Alexi Sayer. Yeah. It's like he's been wanting to do that the whole way through the film. He but it's allowed in a dream. Mm. Yeah. It's great. And the rest of it, he has been really well directed to say, step it down, step it down. Yeah. We are following you. And I think I watched this. Did you see this at the time when it came out? No, I didn't. I saw it some years later, I think. I saw it, I remember seeing it at the time and I loved the young ones and I liked the comic strip. It was the, that thing. I thought the comic strip, I thought, oh, it's not quite as... This was the one I loved and I think it's because it's really, really well directed. And the whole series was supposed to be this showcase for Peter Richardson as a director or, or them as, as filmmakers. And a lot of them I watch and I go, I love the fact you're trying this, but I don't think you are as good a filmmaker as if you'd got a real director in. It was always felt a little bit short and I, I sometimes they were a bit charmless or a bit um, meandering and you loved it for that, but it was... You wished someone had done it as well as ripping yarns or something. You, I kept wishing there was a great person in charge. This one, everyone's on the top of their game and it's so well directed. There's not a closed door in it. It lets you in and you understand it. And it's a masterclass in how to have your cake and eat it with a parody. It's a masterclass in saying what you want to say. And I watched afterwards, I watched GLC, the follow-up. Mm. Yeah. And everything they get right in this, they get wrong in GLC. And GLC's got some fun bits in it. The, the story within the story that gives you the structure, the excuse to do the parody. In GLC, it's just a straight parody. Yeah. You've lost the, the person who lets you in. GLC feels like a long sketch. This feels like a little Bill Forsyth film. It's got a proper film feel to it. It's lovely. Well, the GLC thing is just a gag within this yeah. film, isn't mm. it, basically, which they, were, they then took seriously yes. and ran with. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it does feel like one of those things where you go, well, we didn't need to know that. We didn't need to have the rest of that story. And and, and when you do it, they, they appear to have forgotten the lessons they learned doing this. And I, I haven't seen the Churchill one they did, but 
Oh, it didn't get oh, the, great. The, the, no, the no. much later one. That yeah, it didn't, yeah, which is the, built on the same idea of taking unpromising subject matter. It's worth saying as well that the subject matter of this at the time in 1988 felt like a really good joke. I mean, a proper solid sketch joke. Hollywood is making the minor strike. It's, and a, then, it's a classic sort of bringing two things yeah. that don't fit together. Pathetic. Yeah. It's a yeah. juxtaposition gag. And you go, oh, Al Pacino's yeah. the minor strike. It's a perfect gag. But within less than 10 years, there's Brassed Off and there's the Full Monty. Mm. And Hollywood is making sentimental, mm. simplified versions of British industrial decline. And I'm watching it again now going, this looks great now. It looks really prescient that they, that they would simplify that story. And this would give you the tools as a kid to then watch everything from the imitation game about Alan Turing. All these cliches have turned up in every film you've seen since where yeah. they've simplified a complicated biopic. And this gave you the tools to understand how that's done. Daddy, what's job security? It's, uh, it's something everybody needs, Tammy. Even you, Daddy? Even me, Tammy. You run along now, OK? Your dad's got right to the Queen, you hear? Your Majesty, I guess you may have heard of me. My name is Arthur Scog. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I really want to talk about this because the film in this is good. That's the genius thing about it. The film wins prizes. It's yeah, it's and it's and it's actually when you watch those parts of of it that are the film, you know, it's well shot. They've they've put a bit of the budget yeah. into it's the film. Within beautiful, the film. Yeah. quite a big budget. This it was four hundred and two thousand pounds. The budget for this, you can I tell there are shots in this when it cuts to from Alexi Sale's story, the, the sort of downbeat, downtrodden writer in London. It looks like a comic strip film. The first cut to Al Pacino, where he's lit on one side in blue and the other side in orange, yes. that's classic Hollywood orange and teal. <laughs> yeah. You go, I know this is a film. It looks like a movie. When he takes the motorbike up above Sellafield, that's a huge shot. It yeah. looks like a movie, but it doesn't look like a bad movie. It looks like a movie you would go and see and that you might enjoy. And that turns the guilt back on you as a viewer and go, how many of these have I sat through? And mm. gone, that's a really good story. I switched this off, weirdly, and Eddie the Eagle was on. Dexter Fletcher's lovely Eddie the Eagle biopic, which contains no actual Eddie the Eagle story and has been completely fabricated to make it exciting. It's The Strike, which is a great movie, but it uses all these cliches to keep you entertained. And at the end of this, I loved that it was a bad film, in inverted commas. Mm. But I also, even as a kid, went, I've watched loads of those films and I love those films. It really does line the audience up in the crosshairs and says, you ask for these and you give them awards and you go and see them. And that's a thing that isn't in the other parodies they do where the films are shit. This film's great. I yeah. want to see Strike. Yeah. A man. A woman. A strike. They want to strike McGregor. You miss one day of work, Scargill, and this miner dies. Strike after strike! Strike. The bloodshed begins. Strike at a cinema near you. It takes so many shots at filmmaking, doesn't it? Even just, you just reminded me talking about that first scene of him where he's lit in blue is where he opens the fridge <laughs> and he's got about a thousand bud wines <laughs> in the fridge. Product, product, placement. product placement. <laughs> Great, well done. You but know. he's blue collar in an American way and it's just that, oh, that yeah. I love that joke, the American take on British. Ama- oh, yeah, I mean, when you get to the final scene and they're in, oh. <laughs> they're in the House of Commons <laughs> oh. and, Rick and they're Mayle. voting. You've all heard what uh, Mr Scoggle has had to say. I think it's time we took a vote on this matter. And the votes are all Oxford and Cambridge, say I. <laughs> <Yeah>. Cotswold, <laughs> <The> Cotswold. <laughs> Stratford and Avon, say I. Oxford and Cambridge, say I. The Cotswold, say I. Great District, say I. And in my memory, someone, and I, I realised re-watching it, this is not a line in the film. I've, in my memory, there's somebody stands up and says, Stonehenge, say I. <laughs> yes, that's the reason. <laughs> And, yeah, they're stopped at the door by beef eaters. Yes. (laughs) Every one of those gags lands. But also, you have watched those films and forgiven that, that when when, when someone's sort of driven from Yorkshire to London in two minutes in an action film, you go, yeah, it's fine. Oh, it's that lovely bit, isn't there, where they're quite clearly in somewhere like the Cotswolds and there's a signpost that says London three miles. (laughs) (laughs) He's being challenged by Dutch, the big big militant miner played by Robbie Coltrane. And, And he's on his motorbike going, give me one hour to stop this strike. And they're clearly up in the north. Yeah. They're, well, they're at Sellafield, aren't they? Yeah. So. <laughs> it's not one hour even to get to London. But it's every bit of that, 
uh, it reminded me, have you seen Adaptation, the Charlie Kaufman film, which yeah. has a similar idea of saying, as a writer, what compromises would you make to make your film entertaining? And they're right that for the budget they've got, if they've got Al Pacino in this, they can't make the little, probably Ken Loachy, Mike Lee film that Alexi Sale wants to make. He's got to make these compromises. There's a real sense of, to make the film they want to make, he has to say yes to the devil. And yeah. then when they show you that film, you go, oh, yeah, that is the kind of film that would make millions of quid. Yeah. It's very adult about its attitude to what kind of compromises you have to make, as well as saying, this is a terrible thing he did, mm. and he gets punished for it, and he feels disillusioned. You can understand there's a real empathy for going, yeah, you'd, you'd say yes to this. It's not just the money. It's a lot of, in inverted commas, grown-ups, producers have come in and said, we can't make a little film. Here's how we make your film make money. And it does. And I wonder whether, it, I think the whole thing must have been born out of some sort of frustration with film producers, whether Peter Richardson was coming up against film producers and not getting anywhere or whether they were insisting on compromises, because he must have been, but this is the third series of the comic strip by now, so he must have been thinking about films. Yeah. And in fact, of the six episodes of this third series, five of them went into cinemas before they were on Channel 4, weirdly. So this yeah. was shown in a cinema in, in, in a double bill with The Yob, I think, something like that. It's a lovely British B feature, actually. It did make me think of that great era of British B features, which are about an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long, that used to be in cinemas. Yeah. You could imagine this being shown. Because it's got a satisfying ealingness of a little man lost in a big... It's got a real yeah. British filmness to it that I think they struggled to achieve in a lot of other stuff, yeah. where there were direct parodies or the, the, the stories weren't quite as firm. This has got a really firm line. Yeah. I mean, it, it does feel very British. There's there's a scene quite early on when Alexi Sales' character is travelling to London for those early meetings about the film, and there's a scene at Victoria Coach Station, I think yeah. it is. Mm. Meets it Nigel Planer there. Yeah, and it looks really crappy in a sort of London yeah. in the 80s way. And it actually made me a bit sort of nostalgic for the crappiness <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of Britain in the 80s. Yes. I think, you know, maybe that's what the, the generation above us feels about the crappiness of the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying is I understand Brexit now. Yeah, yeah. That's right, what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's, got a, it's got a lovely thing. There's a guy, he's a dreamer, he's come from his little Welsh village and he's got this big opportunity to become a star. The lovely little... They've got a little detail with his friends from the from the, the miners who want to be in his film. And he says, my friends can be in it. And immediately this wall comes up and your friends can't be in it. Yeah. And that's, you feel for that. That's achingly, it's done in about three exchanges. Yeah. That feeling that they're not going to, they're going to think he locked them out. Yeah. All those little things, they're done really delicately. And I was, I remembered this being about an hour and a half. I was shocked that it came from it. It's 59 same, minutes. Same here. Yeah. I thought it was feature length, yeah. yeah. It's a swift bit of storytelling. It's, there's, uh, there's not much fat in it, but this is just a really quality piece of storytelling. So you're saying that this Scarface... Scargill. Scargill, Schmargill. You're saying that this guy, the hunky hero, the head of the miners, you're saying that he's too chicken shit scared to go down the mine and dig out Merrill Street? I'm sorry, what's Meryl Streep got to do with it? I don't know, she's available in July. Yeah, I mean, for me, the comic strip is all about the strike, really. That's <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, it's yeah. the one that we had on videotape and we would just watch it over and over again in my family. And, you know, and I could always make my family laugh by going, Daddy, what's job security? <laughs> 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 I also I love Nigel Planer's astonishingly overacted uh, old man on a bed. Oh yeah, <laughs> all those people who are trying. And they, they, there's a lovely, again, brilliant bit of storytelling. A cut from that to the person winning best comic side. I don't. I made up award. Best comic side character. Yeah. Going. All these people in it are just chewing the scenery to have their bit of this story that happened to real people, and that the people. It's got a really good sense of 
the people who don't matter are the real people. And Hollywood turns up and it doesn't care. When they evict that woman from her house. Oh, oh God. Oh, Dawn French house. and the Fishbowl is my favourite <laughs> moment of physical comedy. <laughs> They're driving around the Welsh countryside and he spots this cottage and says, uh, that, you know, that's where I'm staying. <laughs> and then Dawn French, the, the old, old lady who lives there, is thrown out. And it's just this wonderful moment where she's walking out of her home that's going to be repurposed as Al Pacino's digs and she's got a scrabble board under her arm <laughs> and a small suitcase and a fish bowl <laughs> with a goldfish in it. And it's just the greatest moment of physical comedy when she's sort of stomping away from her house in a sort of resigned way <laughs> and the fishbowl drops, <laughs> smashes on the floor and she just does this tiny... We can't even see her face. She's got her back to camera and she does this tiny little shrug with her arm like, oh, well, doesn't matter, and then walks on. <laughs> it's full of... Comic strip, they're big performers, most of them. They're big sketch performers or they're, they're live performers. And I think this has got the smallest performances from any of them. To the extent that when Rick Mayle turns up at the end, and he's a bloody treat, his credits are hunchback stroke speaker of the house. Yes. He's a perfect Rick Mayle twofer. But he, he turns up at the speaker of the house at the end, looking a bit like Abraham Lincoln. That lovely thing where he's in charge of, of, of the House of, house of Commons, but he's got an American accent and a, and a founding father's beard yes. <laughs> and a big wig. And he was on the... And my wife walked in... Brilliant and went, physical bit with the gavel as well. Oh, but yeah. He comes, he does all this stuff, and he's so small. My wife walked in and went... Who's that? And I went, it's Rick Mail. She went, I've never seen him be so small. Yeah. But he's in a parody where he would be allowed to be colossal, but everyone has pulled it in. They, that actor he's playing in that film is giving the best performance he can give yeah. as a completely misconceived character. Well, Mr. Scoggle, I think you should go home and tell little Tammy that, yes, the miners can go back to work. They've got this astonishing arsenal. Dawn French is an amazing physical clown, but she does that tiny shrug when she drops the goldfish, goldfish bowl. Rick Mayo does a little wink to the kid. Yes. There's yeah. a wink to Al Pacino and then does the physical comedy with throwing his gavel aside and laughing as the yeah. house erupts. <laughs> now, if, if you'll excuse us, we have a country to run. Thank you, sir. God bless the United Kingdom. God bless us all. Those are the two Rick Mail moments he's given, but he's on screen for a few minutes and he's never unleashed Rick. It's mm. really uh, controlled. And it's so late in the film that you yeah. get Rick as well. Yeah. <laughs> you think, oh, at last, Rick Mail. Everything's very disciplined. And yeah. I think that what you loved about the comics, what you loved about the young ones, the anarchy of it, and I think this is a, an almost unique example of them being totally, totally disciplined. And it's horrible to say it, but the effects are really... It works. They're yeah. amazing at this. Yes, well, with all due respect, Mr Pacino, um, this strike uh, was probably the biggest blow for the British Labour movement in the last 60 years. And... Could you give me a period of water? With lime? Yeah. Dawn French, by the way, playing... Verity in this. Now, surely that's a nod to Verity Lambert, isn't it? Because she's even got the same hair as Verity oh. Lambert. Oh, that, I hadn't thought of that. Because I'm interested in the fact that as that character, as part of the making of the film, her role is never defined. No, no. one ever says this is the producer or this is the production manager. She seems to have a role that's sort of partly writing checks for people, 
partly she's a getting line producer. Is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's clearly quite important. She's yeah. she's fairly high status, mm. not as high status as Robbie Coltrane's character. But then Al Pacino in one of those meetings. Al Pacino, uh, played by Peter Richardson, just looks at her. She's the only woman in the room, and he just says, "Get me a Perrier water." And yeah. she says, oh, with lime? And, she, and she's straight. And I, I think that's quite a sort of, I'm jumping ahead here. But it's, it's a sort of slightly ahead of its time bit of commentary on women being sidelined in yeah, film. That she has this powerful. quite important yeah. role, but yet as soon as the star asks her to get him a water, she's out of the room. It's amazing at those pecking orders. I think as well, one of the things, maybe you're the same as me, I loved anything that had behind the scenes in it. I love yeah. antiques and yeah. That, yeah. That, that Victoria Wood sketch, my favorite, my favorite thing growing up. Anything that showed you the making of things because I was interested in telly to that degree and film and things. This has got a lot of that for you. If you're a kid watching this, it says, this is how they do it. And and it's got a, a flattering thing. Of, you know these roles and you watch it and you've got uh, a little nod to say, hey, you're in on this with us. You know how annoying a, a star can be. And actually at the end of it, you if you watch this and you're a kid, you go, I know about how films are made now. Yeah. And about that power, a star arrives, a diva arrives and everyone goes insane. Yeah, that, they get that brilliantly, um, <laughs> and you've, you've seen this. I done. know it's a goddamn orange. I want to know what it's doing in my seat. <laughs> if she's peeling an orange, I want to be loading a handgun. <laughs> That's what, you know. I read that um, Peter Richardson, I think, said that he read some interview in, in Time Out or something where someone said this is something that um, that Meryl Streep does. Is that she? You know, she. I think she did it in Out of Africa. She had. She has an orange in the scene because it's all about getting as much um, camera time as you can. So if you're doing something that makes you look slightly more interesting than the person who's not doing anything, yeah. then the camera might fade you. Yeah. So it's, it's all, funny. Again, I read the same thing, but struggle. I read that it was Jennifer Saunders herself who did it. Who had who had learnt that this was oh, something that oh, Meryl right. Streep does? Is that she? Somebody had said she's very good at pulling focus, even if she has no line in a scene. That lovely bit of her drawing an orange on her script. <laughs> going, right, this is where the orange is going to come out. Then. It's all it's all done to set up, say that competition between Streep and Pacino that's in this. I've seen that done in films and it takes 10 minutes and it's done in about three lines. It's the efficiency of this at allowing the audience to say, I now know what their dynamic is. If she's peeling an orange, I want to be loading a handgun. That when you suddenly cut to one of those shots in full lighting, that you as an audience member know who those two guys are. Even if you don't know who Meryl Streep and Al Pacino are, who I don't think I did know who they were when I saw this. You, sort of you, don't, know, yeah. you don't need to, really, do you? You can no, just tell like, that these are just spoiled actors. Yeah, it's a kind of parody that's sort of inclusive. You know, yeah. and, and there's nothing wrong, by the way, I think, with ec- exclusive parody. There's a room for the kind of jokes where you think, oh, the only people who would get this joke yeah. is the yeah, writer yeah. and me and a few other people. You know, that's a fun, that's a delicious experience when you feel like you're in yeah. on, a, on an exclusive joke. But this is very inclusive in that it educates you about yes. the reference whilst making a joke about it. Yeah, I mean, that, that again, you're talking about here about discipline. That's writing discipline. They could have done, and I've seen it, and that would be a very easy thing to do with this, to do loads of jokes about Al Pacino movies and loads of jokes about Meryl Streep movies or even about these kind of movies. And I don't think it contains any jokes that you need to have seen a specific film to get. No, it's all general stuff about movie making. It's You learn from that bit you've just talked about with the oranges that actors <laughs> really like having physical <laughs> yeah. business to do, which, mm. is a, which is quite a nerdy little thing about, yeah, about yeah. movie making that most people wouldn't know, but you learn that through this film and they make something really funny out of it. And actually, since we were talking about imposter syndrome, I don't think I knew that before I saw this film. And then I don't think I've ever done 
a, a script or a sketch or something about an actor where I haven't in the back of my mind known that they want to pull focus. This gave yeah. me the tools then to have looked like I'd seen lots of films or that I'd observed this. And with a good parody, whether it's Airplane or, or, or this, or Blazing Saddles or something, you're given a toolkit to then use as a writer or producer or a director or a comedian to unlock loads of other comedy and loads of other references that you don't have access to. Yes. I think if you, if you want to understand movie making, probably the easiest way to understand uh, what actors are like in the movie industry is to know that in Final Draft, the software that we all use to write scripts, there is a function where you can count the number of words <laughs> yeah. a character has and actors and their agents use that all the fucking time. <laughs> That's what you need yeah. to know. They all want, they call it real estate, don't they? They want real estate on the page. Yeah. For instance, you know, that scene on um, page 31, when uh, I make this very emotional plea to Meryl, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, she says something to me like, uh, oh, God, no author, or something like that. Is no, that right? That's right, yeah. 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 Um, I was just thinking that this kind of, um, this very, you know, beautifully written scene would be kind of um, more dramatic, you know, if there was just like this uh, uh, wounded silence, you know. But that's her only line in the scene. Uh, if you take that out, she'll have nothing to say. Yeah. I was thinking when I was watching this, I thought, oh, it's, it's basically ripping yarns, isn't it? That's yeah. what a comic strip is. And then I learned this morning that Peter Richardson was an essay in an episode of Ripping Yarns. Was he? One of his first screen roles. Good factoid. Not bad, eh? But it's, it's Winfrey's that... Last Case. Really? Yes. That's. It's got that feeling of having bargained with the people, because probably because it's Channel 4 and the budget system's different or something, having bargained with the people and said, you know the usual rules you have for this, that there has to be three sets, studio audience... We're not doing that, yeah. which is yeah. what Ripping Yarns always was to me as a kid. Went, oh, they did a sitcom that we had, didn't have those rules. Really exciting to mm. watch. And this had that feeling. They've ripped up the rule book and said, we'll do a film. We can yeah. do that. Yeah. Mm. And that, that sense of ambition is amazing. This is going to be a complete dead end because I have no facts about this. But it's, of course, co-written by Pete Richards, about whom... I know nothing. Ah, mm. me too. Except that he died last year, or the year before, 2018. Did he? Died, he? age 65. Mm. Peter Richardson's collaborator, and by all descriptions, Peter Richardson, he said, was this crazy guy full of ideas, and he said, I did the things of making, uh, of sitting down and making it all make sense. I mean, there's a certain maverick genius in coming up with mad stuff, but this looks like someone has taken all those mad ideas and really made them work. And if that was Peter Richardson's, he's a genius. Mm. Because this is... Everyone's getting to do their thing and being crazy. But if this is the one where his iron discipline really came in, he deserves applaudits. And I know nothing about him. He died very young. Apparently he struggled with substance abuse and things and was Pete Richardson's collaborator, did all the comic strips with him. And if he was the structure guy, this is his masterpiece. This was, is his yeah. monument. Was there not a bit of you that thought that it was possible that Pete... Richens was Peter <laughs> was Richardson's imaginary friend. <laughs> Getting an extra credit for a bit of extra money. It's like Chuffy from uh, uh, Miller, you know. <laughs> he only sees him when he's had a pint. Uh, yeah. But there, there's a collaboration field that this does look like someone has sat down and really worked this structurally out to make it work. And one of the things that, that is the consequence of that is when it kicks in into the bad film that is annoyingly quite good, 
when it kicks into that, you are totally on the journey with this. You're so ready for it as well. It comes yeah. quite. It comes sort of later than you would expect, yeah, given that, that it then becomes intercutting between the real world and the film within the film. The film starts, I think, about 25 minutes yeah. in. Yeah, and about 10 minutes after that, you start this climax, which is a ticking bomb climax. Give me one hour to stop the strike. <laughs> yeah. With that brilliant <laughs> fudge of eventually the editor asking Parliament, can the miners go back to work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even as a kid, I knew that's not what it was about. <laughs> yes, they can go back to work. Ah, but, oh, but he brings his daughter into it. Yes. And that's, that's yes. what, With her that, that's what melts the irons, hearts yeah. of these top-hatted <laughs> men <laughs> in the House of Commons. <laughs> Tell Tammy you can go back to work. But that, that ticking bomb, that give me an hour... And the, the the bike chase and everything, you're watching it and you go, I'm completely suckered into this. And I think that is, again, a really clever writer's technique to go, if we want to keep people watching this, they've got to invest in the characters, even within the parody, which is the thing we observed about, about Airplane, that about 10 minutes before the end, you really care about getting that plane down. You don't want Leslie Nielsen and everyone to die. Yeah. yeah. And you, but, but they're not real. You've yeah. told us they're not real, but I am completely... It's an astonishing exercise in saying that those cliches are, are bad, but they're the building blocks of everything you do. Yeah. You want Arthur Scargill to win for the miners, even yeah. though we know he didn't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Which has been beaten on that yeah. at the beginning. Well, this guy feels like a loser. <laughs> it seems to me this Arthur Scargill character is, um, seems to me to be some kind of um, loser. Yeah, that's the way it reads to me. Um, yeah, he loses, yeah. Yeah, well, what else trying to say, forgive me, Al? No, please. Is that uh, we don't like the end of the picture? It really hits the ground running as well, doesn't it? Like the first scene is the pitch meeting. Yeah. You're, go you're going straight in here, you know exactly where this is going and you know exactly how this is going to go wrong. And now you just go, so once you've got that out of the way in about two minutes, you go, great. Just going to enjoy this now. I'm just going to enjoy watching this Paul Sod's screenplay being wrecked by Hollywood and fucked up by Goldie Goldstein, this terrible producer, who I thought looked a lot like Joe Don Baker in Edge of Darkness. I wonder whether the wig and the makeup, big American suit, based on that. Jedbra. He looks, he looks like a bit like an ice cream. Yeah, I do, I do like his huge ice cream. <laughs> Coltrane's great in this. You forget, oh, God, isn't he great? Yeah. Now, now he's a serious actor and things. You forget he's just an asset to any comedy thing. The accent he's chosen for Dutch. Yeah. This isn't the White Dutch. Too late, Arthur. Time for talking is past. It's either coal or nuclear power. Which side are you on? There, there are words in there that I've never heard pronounced that way, but it's just it's too American. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, guys, just give me one hour to win this strike for all of us. I think we're all a little tired of your fancy, moderate ideas, Arthur. Right, boys? Yep. I was I got very, uh, very struck by the regal, the cinema... In the in the village, the one that's showing uh, oh, London yeah. Two, yeah. The, the, the the carnage continues or whatever it was, um, and I wondered whether it was still there because it's such a delightful little building. So I looked it up on Google Street View, and it's not. Oh. There's, well, a, it there's like a Jehovah's it was falling Witness down at the time. There's a Jehovah's Witnesses meeting room there now. In it's Bangwin. an amazing location. The, it's beautiful. Great, his, isn't it? his hometown with that one that single street. It I looks know. like the village is only made up of that one. Street. There's, there's a. I mean, there are so many little bits of trickery in this film. Like, there's one moment 
uh, quite low-key moment where you hear the director, the original director, the one who gets fired, yes. played by Nigel Planer, talking to Dawn French's producer, whatever she is, character, saying that he really wants to do a, a crane shot above the whole village. No. And then later on, you do see that crane shot, but it, but not as part of the movie, but as part of the oh. the, the real life. You, you get that crane yeah. shot above yes. that street. That's, yeah. that's your, your final satisfying finale. The way that street looks, which is how Welsh villages really look, which is there's something so Spartan and and pure about those little Welsh mining villages. And then when they redress it, there's a, that shot of them cobbling the streets yeah. <laughs> with Adrian Edmondson just, just putting down cobbles and I want 400 Victorian street lamps all up here. That's an amazing shot. They, they appear to be actually be doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's really yeah. good. And, and then, that's all been set up, all those little moments, like the, the children when everyone's listening to the radio to see if Arthur Scargill will, <laughs> yes. will be victorious. Yeah. And there's the children standing in a field somewhere wearing sort of 1930s yeah. shorts and stuff. That All of that stuff has been set up in one line early on where, where the director says... Um, the film is set in the 80s, but it feels like the 30s. Yes, yes, exactly. All films do. <laughs> <laughs> and that final thing, that montage, again, talking about this not being a bad film, this wins awards. What's funny about it is it's succeeding. Mm. Yeah. Um, and this, when you see that final montage, especially the hilarious of the people by the by the Morris Traveller or the Austin Seven with a football waiting by the yeah. radio, I've seen that in films that won Oscars. That's the King's Speech ending. Is that? Yeah, that is still yeah, being true. used yep. as the language of nostalgic selling British history to Americans. Thirty years later, we're still using them, and I think the power of this as a as a an educational comedy for kids when you watch it is you go, I can now see this. The number of times I've walked out of especially supposedly true stories that have been assembled from these cliches that are still made. I thought that about Frost Nixon. It felt a little bit like it felt like the strike. Things just <laughs> feel like the strike when you see them now. And you go, that's not really how it happens. <laughs> but Indian Rhapsody feels like the strike. Yeah. It's that. Oh, I haven't seen that, but I can imagine it's precisely it's, it's like this. very much the, the strike team have made the Freddie Mercury story. And then when you see someone, the other great thing is when you see someone who transcends that in a biopic or a historical thing, you really feel that they've managed to avoid these cliches. Yeah. And they must be so tempting. It's a real lesson in getting the right balance, but you know, you do need to, you know, if you just present somebody's life as it was or a historical vendor as it happened without any sense of structure or, you know, thinking about the three acts and all of that, stuff you know it would be a boring movie yeah but then again you can go too far with that stuff and you can make the strike um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think there are certain even just little little filmmaking things not to do with the structure of a story or so but little things like you know the cliche of somebody turns the light off in a bedroom and it's nighttime and and but you need to be able to still see the actors a bit so the the blue light turns like French and mm. Saunders did it a lot yeah, yeah. this blue bright blue light would suddenly switch on very obviously. But there's things like that that I find myself having conversations as a producer, you know, with a DOP about how we're going to light this night scene. And, I, and there's a voice in my head saying, don't do what French and <laughs> yeah. Saunders take the piss yeah. out of, or what the comic strip took the piss out of. It's, it's really interesting to talk to you as a producer and you as a producer picking this, because I think this is a, a very, oh, it's very, very good. And it is very, very funny and is brilliantly done. But it is an astonishing uh, resource that goes with you into the rest of your career. I've lived with this in my head since I saw it when I was a kid as a roadmap of bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> but if it was just a roadmap of bad habits, it would be a weaker thing. What it's also is a roadmap of great things you can do that are really exciting. Yeah. And the fact that it's got both those in it stops it being preachy. 
it has that cake and it eats that cake. But you do feel that Alexei Sales' screenwriter was naive. I don't think his film would have been as good. No, you do get the sense. <laughs> with, there's that wonderful scene near the beginning where they all go to visit his hometown and recce at his location. Yeah. And he's sort of skipping down the street with great excitement, saying, Arthur Scargill was here and I was here. It's obviously the, the most exciting moment in his life when he yeah. actually met mm. Arthur Scargill. Yes. And then the sound cuts out because you're, suddenly you're, in the, you're with the yeah. producer and the director who don't care about what he's saying and you just hear this waffle in the background. This is where it actually happened. Right here. Now, you know that bit on page 71, right? Well, Scargill arrived here, right? And I was standing here, right? And you think, actually, his film would be terrible in a different way. Yeah, I want yeah. him to fade out. I want to hear what the exciting Hollywood guys are yeah. because, actually, that little cinema won't be saved by you putting that film in there. It will just be of interest. That's a vanity publishing. That's a memoir about someone who who worked in a garden centre. It's not actually a great story. And to not understand that is naive. And it's his flaw. It's his tragic flaw. It's why he's such a heartbreaking character. And we saw 500 coppers, hard-faced bastards with visors and shields and bands, and they're walking like this right now. Oh, Mrs Griffith, I think she'd come out to see him, right? She'd like to tell <laughs> What do you think? It's just all this double glazing. I know, it's completely bad taste. One of the landlords just clipped right out and spins him, and he's spinning like this, he's spinning round and round. It's not like the Hollywood guys were wrong. And I think that's the, the extra element that this gets, which a lot of movies about the venality of the film trade sort of just go, oh, it's evil and horrible. And you go, yeah, but they're making money. Yeah. And it's it, it plays a clever trick because it's a film within a film and you get to see the making of as well. It sort of shows its workings. So you understand what the writer is doing or what the writer has been encouraged to do by yeah. the Hollywood folk when it, when it comes up within the film. So, for example, there's a bit early on when Arthur Scargill has his face-off with the militants and... And there's this line where he says, I'm probably misquoting it, but he says something along the lines of, well, you know, if the if you get what you want and the mines aren't maintained, then that whole slag heap could come down and we could have some sort of disaster. <laughs> yeah. And it's doing that that movie thing of setting up what's the worst case scenario yeah. early in the film so that you anticipate that and you know that that's going to happen later. But you're aware, you're really aware of it because you've been yeah. told this is how this works. Yeah, I, I, yes, exactly. It, it is a masterclass in... There are many scripts that require that slag heap line in it and aren't working because you haven't put that slag heap line in. And I think that's what I found fascinating about it is that it says here are efficient techniques that have been used since time immemorial to part people from their ticket money. <laughs> and it works and we are cynical for doing it and you have every right to think we're awful. But without them, that film would be awful. And it's about a devil's bargain. Yeah. And I think it's a devil's bargain that you always make as a writer. And as a producer, doing Paddington, there was a scene in the first film where Julie Walters' character, Mrs. Bird, had to say, turn to Hugh Bonneville's character and say, you just don't get it, do you? That bears made your life better. And do the speech. Mm. That happens just before Act 3 to tell you where we've got to in the film. And that would have had an underlining under it every time in the script going, we have to get rid of this. There cannot be a scene where a wise old woman says to a man who's learning a lesson, <laughs> you just don't get it, do you? Mary Poppins is the best thing that's happened to this family. You can't go back to the bank. And Paul kept saying, we have to lose that line. So it got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. Saw the final of the film. You just don't get it, do you? Because it needs <laughs> it to be needs there. It, yeah. Every time it was taken out, the film didn't work. 
because it's like the strike. Sometimes you have to say, that's like people come down if you don't stop the militants. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial if I say that Paddington is a better film than The Strike. I think it is, but it's through lessons, <laughs> yes. it's through lessons <laughs> learned from The Strike, including when to put that stuff in there. But I think that you... It's a great lesson in in, in the, the power of cliché as well as the pitfalls of cliché. Do you want a dynamite bit of trivia? Triv. Yes, please. Darren Nesbitt, who plays the chauffeur in this, <laughs> right? Oh, this uh, is going to be good. This I, is this is this. Hey, I've got I know to, this. I know this. Wait, wait. I've got to thank. I've got to thank my friend. It, Ian Greaves for this because he just gave me this and it's such a delightful thing to know. <laughs> Darren Nesbitt um, is the co-founder of Our Price Records, <laughs> which he founded with his brother in 1971, and this is 1988, and he's still bothering to go and get work. This is your hotel, Mr Piccino. No, it isn't. That's amazing. But, but was he an actor before he... Founded. I don't know. He's in a few of the comic strips here and there. I wonder if they just got him in as as a, a mate. mate. I, that's could brilliant. Be, could be like Paul's mates wanting to be in the film. Yeah. You know, maybe he was <laughs> Peter, your mate from Our Price. Peter be Richardson's mate. Yeah, my mate yeah. who runs Our Price yeah. who owns Our Price. In, which this in '88 he must have been worth a fucking fortune. And this he? is brilliant as well because if you like us had this on video and watched it again and again, he's quite a big star. The chauffeur from Strike. For me, <laughs> yeah. like, like Tammy, it's quite a big star. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the little people. She was brilliant. Yeah, she's brilliant, isn't yeah. she? She's my yeah. favourite child actress of all time. Yeah, yeah. And she's all child actresses because that's who she's playing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course. Yes. And she plays it in a way where she seems to understand that it's a parody. Yeah. She's got a real sense of humour about yes. it, even though she's just a little kid. Well, everyone likes doing this. This is a, a, a thing. One of the first sketches we ever wrote together at school it was a parody of a school nativity play. Everyone likes doing a thing where they get to be a bit over the top and a bit bad at something, like National Theatre of Brenty yeah. kind of things. We fell in a cunk. It's basically a bad documentary. It's all Acorn Antiques and it's all Patrick Barlow and everyone likes doing that. But I think that's what's great about this is that they this is the comic strip getting to do, like they do with uh, Five Go Mad. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to all be in a big thing where we all get to play up? Everyone's written one of these and this is just better than that. Mm. I can't take much more of this author. I love you, but I'm nearly 30. I want a home for me, for Tammy, for all of us. Oh God, I hate this strike. We haven't uh, we haven't said nearly enough about Jennifer Saunders, yeah? Which she's brilliant. Oh, she's extraordinary. Isn't it is yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah, she plays this slightly surreal version of Meryl Streep, mm. and she's. <laughs> She is oddly quiet in the film, and yeah. there's been this idea set up that all her lines are being cut by Al Pacino. Yeah, uh, and then when she appears, she doesn't have much to say, and she does. I mean, not just Meryl Streep is stealing the scene from Al Pacino, but Jennifer Saunders is stealing the scene yeah. from Peter Richardson. Yes, yes. <laughs> just standing yes. there. Competition is going on outside. Yeah, constantly peeling oranges and and <laughs> sort of the weeping of in every scene. <laughs> Yes, there's always a wheelbarrow full of oranges. Yeah. <laughs> but also, she's she's small, and she, but she is. Okay, you can't do the piss take of Al Pacino or Meryl Streep without being a bit as good as them. Yeah, because she's a good actress in it. Yeah, and when yeah. she cries, I have a little lump in my throat. Going, I know this isn't really happening, but I'll have those buttons pushed. I got my buttons pushed when we see a little tear in her eyes. She's good. Yeah. yeah. I'm 
I'm sorry, Arthur. I love the workers as much as you do. God damn it, Arthur, you're gonna have to choose. It's me or the union. Don't say that! Don't ever say it to me again. I mean, you know, you, you mock someone by exaggerating the thing we all know about Yeah. Them. And the thing we all know about Meryl Streep is that she's an amazing, subtle, nuanced, brilliant actor. Yeah. So how do you exaggerate that? You make her <laughs> she even more it. nuanced. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if... Oh, God, I wish I'd looked this up. <clears throat> I wonder if either Al Pacino or Meryl Streep has seen this. It would have been clamped and banned, wouldn't it? Because been removed. No, because you, you, sort of, you sort of assume that they've both got a sense of humour. Yeah. And that they know I mean, that Meryl they're not. Meryl Streep the, certainly has a sense of they're not. Mamma Mia, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. <coughs> yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I bet she's seen it. I think she'd love it. But also, I think this is there's a nice thing in this in that that joke, the starring so and so as. Uh, that's every writer's room has done that. You do it on the back of the bus, you do it at school. It's a pretty basic joke with starring starring Hulk Hogan as Boris Johnson is a pretty basic level joke. Yeah. This is really good in that it's not just stunt casting. These are the two people who would be in it. They've not chosen the wrong people to be in it. They've chosen the right people to be in it. And they're the right people for the era, the right people for 1988. When they did GLC and it's Charles Bronson, he wouldn't have been in that film. He's a 70s film star. They've got exactly the right people. And it feels like a 1980s film crew and a 1980s film production. It feels like the world of Putnam and BAFTA. It feels like exactly the right era. When they Again, when they do GLC, it opens with Nigel Planer as a, as a film reporter on the red carpet. Good evening and welcome to the charity gala premiere performance of the new motion picture, GLC. Well, as you can see, it's uh, certainly a glittering night for the stars here tonight on this warm evening here in the heart of London's West End. And he's a 1970s Monty Python sketch Eric Idle film reporter, not who it would have been in, not a late show. Mm. This feels really of its time. They've not gone for the sketch joke versions of the jokes. They've gone for the authentic versions, which, again, just it raises it up a, a couple of notches. And it's worth doing because you get a result like this. Mm. Yeah. And in future, Mr. Scoggle, I think this house would appreciate it if you conducted your business in a more formal manner. <laughs> yes, sir. Now, if, if you'll excuse us, we have a country to run. Thank you, sir. Yeah. I think, you see, with your... You going from producing to writing, I think you're cheating because you're not <laughs> going to make the mistakes <laughs> that we writers make, which producers point out, we can't really do that, you know. Well, this is one of the main things I've learned. I mean, there are so many things that I sort of knew intellectually only as yeah. a producer and script editor that I'm now understanding from the inside yes. as a writer. And one of them is that you have to make those mistakes, that that's not a stage that you can skip at. You have to yeah. write the bad draft yes. before you write the good one. So but are you deliberately going to make mistakes? Then? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, I've works. seen other writers write two and a half bad drafts before it gets good. So, so I'll, this is my... Ba- no, I'm so not doing that. I'm not doing that. No, you, you think every draft is the right one when yeah. you write it and, but, and then somebody else tells you what's wrong with it and you go, oh, of course. And, and yeah. I'm discovering that you... 
Did you have to go through that somehow? That's a great thing to learn because you sometimes get the feeling as a writer that the producers are going, why have you written a bad one? Yeah. <laughs> why have you, you done this again? Write, write a good one. It's like, yeah, it's like saying, why have you written the, the non-hit singles? Why, why don't you just write hits? Oh, no, just the singles. I remember that from a record company going, yeah, we haven't, we haven't got the single yet, have we? Going, what do you think we're trying to do? We're trying to write the fucking single. Every one of these is an attempt to be a single, you know? Yeah, the failing isn't deliberate. The failing is part yeah. of the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm not cheating. You're doing the bad roles really? yeah. as well. yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of here's not here's what you shouldn't do in the strike, isn't there? There really is. Yeah, they tell you what not to do, and then they do it and get yes, away with it. Yes. Not just in the film within the film, but in the real life yeah. story as well. There's a great scene where it's the sort of low point for Alexi Sale's character, where um, Al Pacino, I think he's playing tennis on a sort of leisurely day between shooting, and and Alexi Sale comes up to him. And sort of, trying to explain to him that the drug-fueled panty raid scene rewrite they asked for isn't really working for him. And then Al Pacino has got a problem of his own and he says, you know, this, this scene where I do the big speech about the Labour movement, and you never see that yeah, scene because yeah, yeah. it gets cut, but, but you, you understand that for Paul, Alexi Sales' character, this is probably the most important speech in the whole film. This is yeah. really the heart of what the film's about, this speech about the Labour movement. And, and, it's probably the, and it's probably the only bit of his original screenplay. It's probably the one remaining. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah. is the one remaining bit. And Al Pacino says, "I think I can say all that just with a look. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need all that dialogue." And as if to prove the rule, you don't need all that dialogue. The response to that in this scene in in Strike is uh, that. Uh, Alexi Sale just rips that he's holding the script and he just rips that page out and it's a very eloquent non-dialogue way of saying I will even make this sacrifice I have reached the yeah. low point of selling out and he just rips that scene of the script out and proves he's right again the, yeah. the generosity of saying they're not saying the Hollywood people are idiots because yeah. Al Pacino is probably right as well the big cartoon mockable film star in this the guy you're taking the piss out of He's right. He can do it with it with it with a, a word. The great parodists can do the thing they're parodying. So that the reason the Ruttles is amazing is because it's as good as the real thing, and the reason that Airplane is good is it's it's a good disaster movie. They've learned from it. Les Dawson's piano playing is because he can play the piano properly. And in that scene, you're proving that these guys making this thing know the rules of screenwriting to the extent they didn't write a big speech for Alexi Sale. Yeah, they know how to make one of these movies, one of these big effective movies, and they use all that tricks in their little 59-minute movie. Yeah, they're To make cheating. you feel. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you're feeling... There's an underdog story here about Alexi Sale they've bolted onto here, which would work in an underdog sports movie. It's Eddie the Eagle. It's all yeah. those underdog biopics. The story of Paul the writer has been run through a heartwarming British film machine filter as efficiently as the strike has been made. Yeah. That's incredibly sophisticated. Yeah, it turns out you don't need all that dialogue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you brought, basically, what's lovely about this, you brought not only a terrific thing that we remember very fondly, but also a masterclass in how to do it and how to not do it, which is yeah. almost impossible to do. Some of them both at the I same know. time. <laughs> what a brilliant thing to bring. Thank you so much, Izzy Mann. Thank Thanks, you. Izzy. 